10 weeks ago, Labor Day weekend, we began our, our current sermon series entitled Evangelical Convictions, a study of the EFCA statement of faith. And if we have learned anything over these last weeks and this last season, it's that we believe in gospel-shaped doctrine, gospel-shaped Bible teaching, because what we have is a gospel-shaped Bible. In other words, that Jesus Christ is the person behind every page of Holy Scripture. Every road in the Bible leads to Him. And so our church is committed. We are committed to learning and loving and living sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. What that means is that the person and work of Jesus Christ, Jesus' life and death and suffering and burial and resurrection and soon return, this message about Jesus colors everything we believe and how we believe it. So we believe that the gospel originates in and expresses the wondrous perfections of our eternal triune God. We believe that the gospel is authoritatively revealed in the scriptures. We believe that the gospel alone addresses our deepest human need. We believe that the gospel is made known supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. And we believe that the gospel is accomplished through the work of Christ. We believe that the gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit. We believe that the gospel is now embodied in this new community that we call the church. And as we learned last week, we believe that the gospel compels us to Christ-like living and witness in this world. So our entire statement of faith is framed around and vitally connected to the gospel message itself. All of our core convictions as a church at the end of the day are aspects of the gospel, which brings us to this morning. The title of this sermon is The Fulfillment of the Gospel, What We Believe About Christ's Return. Now, we had an election this past week, didn't we? An historic one by any measure. I'm not exactly sure how you interpret the results of this election, how you may be doing internally since all the votes have been counted. I think Michigan's been counted. Michigan finished up counting yet? I think all the votes are in. And on the front end of this message, I want to offer some counsel to every Christ follower here in, in the connection with the events of this past week. And this counsel is twofold. First, please don't be kept away from hope if you are disappointed with the results of this election. Please don't be kept away from hope. Secondly, Please don't be swept away with hope if you are delighted with the results of this election. Don't allow this election to allow you to be kept away from hope or to be swept away with hope. Why do I say that? The answer is found in Philippians 3.20. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. You believe that this morning? 
Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does this doctrine, how does the return of Jesus anchor into the message of the gospel? Well, here's, here's how it anchors in. We believe that the gospel will be brought to fulfillment at the end of this age by the Lord himself. We believe that the gospel will be brought to fulfillment by the Lord himself at the end of this age. This morning, we're going to look at three different aspects of the gospel's fulfillment that will keep us straining forward. I was thinking this morning, the, the last cry of Jesus, right before he says, into thy hands I commit my spirit, Father, he says, it is finished. It is finished. And yet, even Jesus himself would agree that it's not quite finished. It's not quite finished because it will be finished. It will be brought to fulfillment at the end of this age when Jesus himself returns. Don't be kept away from hope. Don't be swept away with hope in view of the news of this past week. Friends, if you're here today and you're a Christian, please know that the best is yet to come, I assure you. The fulfillment of the gospel will be the very beginning of the very best. So let's begin with the first point today. Point number one, the gospel will be brought to fulfillment when Christ returns to reign in person on this earth. The gospel will be brought to fulfillment when Christ returns to reign in person on this earth. At this time, I invite you to take your sermon outline one more week here, and if you haven't done so, open it up to Article 9 so you can see the Free Church Statement of Faith on one side and your your sermon outline on the other. The the text today is Article 9 of the Free Church Statement of Faith. Would you follow along with me as I read the first sentence? We believe in the personal, bodily, and premillennial return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Period. Now, while it's a, it's a breathtaking claim, I suspect that most of the words in that sentence aren't particularly difficult for any of us to navigate. There is one word, we'll get to that word shortly, but out of the gate, this is a biblical, historic Christian confession regarding the second coming of Christ. We believe that Christ, first of all, will return to this earth personally. You see that? Personally. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says it quite plainly. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. The Lord himself. Our free church leadership summarizes it well for us as they write, this is not the coming of a force or an idea or a new form of government or a new way of life. The Bible affirms that the coming of Jesus Christ himself is this same Jesus who will come back, Acts 1.11. Just as surely as he once came to us as a carpenter, so he himself will come again as king, end quote. We believe that the second coming of Christ is, is personal. Secondly, we believe that the return of Christ will be physical. In many ways, this additional confession just serves to strengthen the one that we just heard. We believe that the second coming of Christ will be, will be bodily, bodily as opposed to spiritual, visible, not invisible. You say, well, is there anyone out there claiming that this is going to happen any other way? Well, the answer is yes. Um, 
As a matter of fact, Jehovah's Witnesses maintain that the second coming of Christ already did happen another way. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the second coming of Christ took place, buckle your seatbelt, on Thursday, October 1st, 1914. That's just over 100 years ago. And yet this claim flatly denies that the return of the Lord Jesus is personal and physical. They openly proclaim that it was invisible, spiritual. Is that what Scripture says? You tell me. This is Jesus speaking now, Matthew 24, 24 to 27. For false prophets, Jesus says, wink, wink, false prophets will arise so as to lead astray, even if possible, the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines so far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Nothing invisible here. Nothing merely spiritual here. The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ will be personal and it will be physical. It will be bodily. King's coming back. One of the reasons we know this to be the case is that the Bible in the Old Testament specifically, specifically speaks of the feet of the Lord Jesus in his return. The prophet Zechariah in chapter 14, verse 4 says, In that day, the day of the Lord, the return of the Messiah, in that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. Now that is a stunning prophecy that is actually picked up by Luke using Zechariah's language. And Luke says this in Acts 1, verses 11 to 12, describing the ascension of Jesus. Immediately after Christ's ascension, the angels say to the apostles, this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. And Luke writes, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. And so he ascended from the Mount of Olives just outside old Jerusalem, And he will descend upon the Mount of Olives just outside Jerusalem. Don't you get the sense that when the Bible speaks of the the return of Christ, it is is unapologetically physical, this-worldly, earthly in its thinking? We believe in the personal bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's one more word in this first sentence, and it's the one word that folks understandably tend to stumble over in our statement of faith. And it's such a shame because of, of what it means. That word is, is pre-millennial. Pre-millennial. We believe in the personal, bodily, and pre-millennial return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you just need to know, I'll put my cards on the table, I am an unashamed premillennialist. I full-throatedly affirm the premillennial return of Jesus. How about you? Well, you might say, Tell me what in the world it is, and we'll see if I agree with it, or more importantly, whether the Bible teaches such a thing. Amen? This is not an adjective that we likely often use, ever use, the premillennial return of Christ. What does that even mean? I'd like to define this word for us, and in so doing, just paint a biblical portrait of the return of Christ that I hope will cause you to ache 
for his return. I believe that when the personal premillennial return of Christ is properly understood, it has an immediate effect of making us homesick. And it creates in us a longing for the very thing that we were created for, which is the, the reign of Jesus Christ, his government on this earth. Premillennialism is the position that takes seriously God's promises to Israel and to the church that Jesus Christ the Messiah will one day come to reign and to rule over the earth from his throne in Jerusalem in the age to come. I'll say that again. Premillennialism is the position that takes seriously God's promises to Israel and to the church that Jesus Christ the Messiah will one day come to reign and to rule over the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. So, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, God makes this promise to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his kingdom forever. Or think of a familiar verse, couple of verses that we hear around the season of Advent, which is fast approaching. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. This is a prophecy about the Jewish Messiah. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You hear it? It's not a prophecy about his cross. It's a prophecy about his crown. Not about his grave, but about his throne. This is a massive reason why most Jews just rejected Jesus out of hand in the first century when he first came. They were expecting the fulfillment of these prophecies. They believed that the Messiah was to rule and to reign, not to suffer and to die. Now, we know, looking back, it's not either or. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? Like, we would have done any better in the first century working these things out. I don't know that we would have. Looking back into the Old Testament, we clearly see texts about the rejection and the suffering and the crucifixion of the Messiah. If we understand anything about the Christ, it's that we know that he had to die. That's what we think of when we think of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross, but ironically today, so few Christians who are happy to give him his cross will somehow seek to keep away his crown. So few Christians, it would seem, have any sense of proportion when it relates to the unblushing promises of the scriptures that Jesus will one day come to rule and to reign on this earth. Listen to Jeremiah 33, verses 14 and 15. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now think he said this during the Babylonian captivity. Okay, When was this fulfilled? In those days, 
At the time I will, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called: "The Lord is our righteousness." That's never been fulfilled. It's yet to be fulfilled. You might be thinking, "Yeah, that's what the Old Testament said," but the New Testament doesn't talk this way. Really. The New Testament would beg to differ. Uh, in about a month's time, we'll have the privilege of studying uh, the account of the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary that she would uh, uh, experience a virgin conception. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, Gabriel tells Mary now, in the first century, your son Jesus will be great And he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. It's yet to come. Toward the end of his life, Jesus plainly said to his disciples in in Matthew 19, 28, truly, I say to you in the new world. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Even after his resurrection, there's still the expectation that Jesus is going to ascend the the Jewish throne, fulfilling messianic prophecies. So think about uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. It's a text that often gets lost in the shuffle. Acts 1, 6. The disciples ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus, rather than rejecting their question, he redirects them in terms of the Great Commission because it's only through the Great Commission when the gospel has finally been preached to every people group on earth that the Lord Jesus will come to return to establish his kingdom. Finally, Peter, in the midst of his gospel preaching, makes this plain in Acts 3, 19 to 21. Jesus says, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time comes for restoring all things about which God spoke from the mouth of his holy prophets. You hear it? Do you believe it? I, I know I've said this to folks individually, I don't know that I've ever said it from this pulpit before, but if you believe in the bodily return of Jesus, like this Jesus is going to have feet, right? Where are those feet going to land? Like Sheboygan? I mean, can you, Detroit somewhere? Where, Where do you instinctively imagine the resurrected Christ to come? He's coming home. Jerusalem, Israel. It all matters. Beyond this election, far beyond this election, one day, according to the Bible, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And the Bible says he'll reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen. Do you look forward to this? We've done all of this without even reference to the classic premillennial text in the Bible, Revelation 20. I would commend that text to you. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. I won't even quote it for us. Except to say that the Bible says in the future one day, Satan himself will be bound in a bottomless pit with a chain. He'll be unable to deceive the nations any longer. And the saints will reign on the earth for a thousand years. 
That's why we refer to it as premillennialism. The Lord Jesus will return prior to the establishing of a new world order. It's a world order of justice and of peace, prosperity, and above all, the uncontested supremacy of King Jesus throughout the earth, over all the earth. Can you imagine it? Now we have some application to do. That's the exposition part. Here's the application and maybe not a lot of time left to do it. But let's begin at least to take a look at how our statement of faith encourages us to live in light of this return. We believe that the gospel will be brought to fulfillment by the Lord himself at the end of this age. First, the gospel will be brought to fulfillment when Christ returns to reign in person on this earth. Secondly, the gospel will be brought to fulfillment at a time we do not expect. So be expectant. The gospel will be brought to fulfillment at a time we do not expect. So be expectant. Would you look with me at the first half of the second sentence of Article 9 of the EFCA Statement of Faith? The coming of Christ at a time known only to God requires constant expectancy. Now, I've actually made a mistake, and it's entirely my fault. I noticed it only late yesterday, long after the sermon outlines had gone to press, as it were. But it's a mistake worth correcting. If you have a pen and you're taking notes, the second sentence of Article 9 doesn't say that the second coming of Christ requires constant expectancy. It doesn't say that. It says it demands constant expectancy. That's what the EFCA Statement of Faith says there. So the sentence reads this way. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy. That's a little stronger, isn't it? Do you live your life that way? Which verb do you need? Is it biblical? Well, let's find out. Speaking of his second coming, Jesus says in Matthew 24, 42, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You hear the force of that? It's not a suggestion. It's a command. The call to remain vigilant is grounded in the plain fact that no one, and I mean no one knows the day or the hour when Jesus is going to return. Not even Jesus knows when Jesus is going to return. I realize that 2016 has had its share of apocalyptic events, hasn't it? Like November alone has seen some startling signs. Cubbies won the World Series. (laughs) Donald Trump is our president-elect. Notwithstanding these end-time events, we are still unwise, we are extraordinarily unwise to engage in anything that looks like date setting at all. In Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, but concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so he concludes several verses later, Matthew 24, 44, therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in a day when you do not expect. Notice the the logic of the Bible moves in the exact opposite direction that a lot of folks think. They think you can't know, so don't worry about it. That's not what Jesus says. You can't know, so eagerly long for his return. Be ready, be looking for him. 
Keep your eyes open. You don't know when he's coming. His thoughts are not our thoughts, are they? Are you ready for the return of the king? For the return of Jesus? Did you know that you can be? Hebrews 9, 26 and 27 proclaims, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear again a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for him? If you're with us today and you are not a Christian, I invite you in this moment to come to the King. Come to King Jesus. By grace, through faith, Jesus lived a perfect life, the life that you and I simply cannot manage to live. And he died a sacrificial death on the cross. It's the death that each of us, frankly, deserve to die because of our sin. He absorbed a penalty that belongs to us. And the Bible says he was raised again on the third day, triumphant over sin and death itself. This is the message of the gospel. The gospel is not behave for Jesus, whatever you have may, may, might have heard. The gospel is believe in Jesus. Believe in the king. Do you believe? Will you turn from your sin this morning and and place your faith in Jesus Christ because the scripture is very clear. He's coming again, but he's not coming again to deal with sin. He's already dealt with sin. He's going to appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you ready to meet the king? Now, that's not just a question for those who don't know Jesus or aren't sure where they stand in relationship to God. That is a question for every single one of us here that professes faith in Christ. For those of us who do know Jesus, his second coming is not an incidental, trivial, pie-in-the-sky kind of doctrine. It's about the most, if you'll excuse the pun, down-to-earth doctrine you could ever affirm. So in closing, allow me to read the entire second sentence of Article 9, because our free church movement serves us so well here with some practical applications. This is news you can use as you leave this place today, and it will change your life. It'll change how you deal with your family. It'll change how you hear a neighbor, what you do at work, how you behave at, in school. Article 9, Free Church Statement of Faith, second sentence. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy, and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Final point today, the gospel will be brought to fulfillment, and this hope ought to motivate every moment of your life. The gospel will be brought to fulfillment, and this hope ought to motivate every moment of your life. I remember the words of Don Carson, when I was in seminary, Don Carson used to say to us that don't worry about being so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. Worry about being so earthly minded, you are of no good neither for heaven nor earth. The gospel will be brought to fulfillment and this hope ought to motivate every moment of your life. Now, the language of, of Christ's return is our blessed hope. You see that there? 
It's totally biblical. Titus 2.13, the Apostle Paul speaks of waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ, the second coming is a happy hope. It's a blessed hope. Did you know that that's why Isaac Watts wrote joy to the world the way that he did? It's a statement about the premillennial return of Jesus. He's writing about the blessed hope, the second coming. That's why it's joyful. Can I hum a few bars? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Right? Now, the rest of it gets even more explicit about the second coming. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. Right? This is the kingdom. Listen carefully. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. This is not the first coming. This is not the baby in the manger. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Tried this last verse on. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love, right? Yes, we look in our hymnals and we find it tucked safely within our Advent carols. It's just that Mr. Watts would be unimpressed. It belongs in the back of our hymnals, leading the chorus of music about the second coming. Isaac Watts, like many Puritans and revivalists of his day was absolutely devoted to the return of Jesus. He would be baffled that we sing this song at Christmas time. That's why it's a blessed hope. Joy will come to the world. It's a blessed hope. Does that motivate you? It should. As we close, allow me to mention three areas of practical motivation for you and for me. Just quote some scriptures and then we're done. The gospel will be brought to fulfillment. And this hope ought to motivate every moment of your life. Let's look at three years of application. First, the coming of Christ, our blessed hope, motivates the believer to godly living. The, first, the second coming of Christ, our blessed hope, motivates the believer to godly living. First John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 say, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Does that logic land on you? Makes perfect sense. Everyone who thus hopes for the return of the holy king is ruthlessly committed to personal holiness until the day that he returns. That's the logic of that sentence. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The coming of Christ motivates the believer to godly living. Secondly, 
The coming of Christ as our blessed hope motivates the believer to sacrificial service. Sacrificial service. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's a capital D in our English Bibles. Rightfully so, because the the writer to the Hebrews is thinking about the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, the blessed hope. Once again, the New Testament logic here is unassailable. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you knew he would return in 60 minutes, what would you get busy doing? Sacrificial service, friends. It's practical. Finally, the second coming of Christ, our blessed hope motivates the believer to energetic mission. Energetic mission. Here, I think of Paul preaching the gospel in Athens. Perfect example. The second coming motivated this man's evangelistic passion. Let's see what it does for yours and for mine. Paul speaking to unbelievers about Jesus in Acts 17, 30 to 31. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The second coming of Christ motivated Paul to energetic mission. It made him wild in evangelism. Does it do that for you, for me? Second coming of Christ motivates us to energetic mission, to build the church. Friends, the gospel will be brought to fulfillment and this hope ought to motivate every moment of your life. Let's review. We believe the gospel will be brought to fulfillment by the Lord himself at the end of this age, not at the end of this week, in view of last week's election, at the end of the age, the gospel will be brought to fulfillment when Christ returns to reign in person on the earth. The gospel will be brought to fulfillment at a time we do not expect. So be expectant, live expectantly. And the gospel will be brought to fulfillment and this hope ought to motivate every moment of your life. Next week, believe it or not, is our final sermon in the study of the Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith. Sermon is entitled, Our Response to the Gospel, What We Believe About Eternity. We've covered a lot of ground in this series, but we have yet to address what we believe about the coming judgment, about heaven, about hell, and about the choice that each of us face as it relates to the message of the gospel. Just to give you a taste of next week, here's the first sentence in Article 10. We believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. That's next week. I'm already chomping at the bit to preach this one, but we'll hold it up here for today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as rare as preaching is on the the second coming of Christ, it ought not to be rare. 
there are 4,017 predictive prophecies in Holy Scripture, most of them dealing with and detailing the return of Jesus, the God-man, the Jew who is going to rule the world. And so, Father, we pray that you just keep us out of step with the culture and maybe even the church culture. Keep us in step with the Spirit pulsing through the pages of Scripture, which is unashamed about its affirmation of last things, about the return of Jesus. Well, Lord, I pray in a practical way that the proof in this one would just be in the pudding, that we would be people who are radically committed to to mortification and holiness, to putting our sin to death and to growing in holiness, to becoming fit for life with the King forever. I pray too, Father, that that this reality, the coming of Jesus, would, would motivate us to sacrificial service. Lord, the King is coming back. Who who are we not to serve or to draw a line and say, I, I can't do that? Lord, may we be may we spend and be spent for this coming King in sacrificial service. And finally, Lord, may we be poured out in energetic mission. There's nothing like the return of Jesus to to move us to help others consider Jesus the king. The king's coming for his kingdom. And we want to bring as many subjects as possible as we can into that blessed hope. So, Lord, may we be a church properly motivated, not staring at the sky, not inactive, not drawing charts and waving picket signs. Lord, may we be a church that is about the business of being and making disciples in view of that return of the one who said, behold, I am coming soon. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.